musicians are as well known for their politics as they are for their music. Paul Robeson, a performer, scholar and footballer, who was born in 1898 and died in 1976, was one such figure. Robeson came to see solidarity between struggles of international workers against their ruling classes and the struggles for black civil rights at home in the USA. Such sympathies led him to be censored and pursued by the US authorities during the early stages of the Cold War. To learn more about this prolific figure and his contributions to radical politics in the 20th century, we talked to writer, editor, broadcaster, and Walkley Award winner, Jeff Sparrow, about his book, No Way But This, In Search of Paul Robeson. The book was a finalist for the Best Writing Award in the Melbourne Prize for Literature in 2018. Jeff is known for his regular columns in The Guardian Australia, among many other outlets, particularly for his commentary on Australian politics, and more recently, the climate crisis, the academic industrial complex, and Palestinian liberation. Jeff is a lecturer at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, the author of many books and essays, and the former editor of the Overland Literary Journal. You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia, and if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net.au. I'm Tommy Gadir, and I'm recording this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Nam or Melbourne. In your introduction to No Way But This, you recount how a mix of coming across materials about Paul Robeson in the bookshop you worked in and reckoning with the role of the arts and literature in politics led you to trace Robeson's life around the world. Can you talk a bit more about what your book adds to the other stories of Paul Robeson that you found in that trade union bookshop in the 1990s? Yeah, so as you suggest, Robeson was not a huge figure for me when I was growing up he was very much someone associated with the old left the not even the generation before me really the generation before that but I at one stage was working in trades hall in Melbourne I was the coordinator of the new international bookshop that your Melbourne listeners might be familiar with and we often received donations of old books from people who had been in the trade union movement or very often had been in the communist party and it was a really fascinating experience to go and collect these books that were often bequeathed to us when someone had died or become so old that they could no longer make use of their own library. And it really gave you a sense of the sort of intellectual richness associated with the old left. I think I said in the book that the generation of activism that I was associated with, there was often a certain kind of utilitarian narrowing that went with becoming an activist that you know people said well okay you're devoting yourself to politics which means that you would put aside all your other activities and it was kind of fascinating to see that for these people around the communist party um and that generation that tended to have been active in the 50s and the early 60s for them the party life had meant this real kind of intellectual flourishing and so they had this incredibly broad range of interests you know so obviously be books of politics and history but there will also be books of, of mathematics and books about opera and books about painting and so on and the Robeson books were part of that and I only had a very vague notion of who Paul Robeson was when I started seeing his name turning up again and again on these books uh, on, on these book sales um, and Insofar as I knew his name, it was essentially as a 
as a singer, you know, I, I vaguely knew Old Man River. I was aware that he had been in films and stuff. I had no idea he was a political figure, let alone that he was of such importance to the civil rights movement that people have compared him to Martin Luther King. You know, so, so all of that had kind of been elided. And so part of what I wanted to talk about was why it was that this figure who at one stage had been described as the most famous American in the world was so completely unknown to my generation. So that, 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 that was part of the venture. But um, what I th- wanted to try to do in terms of adding to the literature, and as you say, there's an immense number of books about um, Paul Robeson, precisely because he once was so famous, was to see what his career, what his ideas and what his fate had to say to the contemporary world. So the way I set out to write the book was partly a biography, but partly a process of discovery where I would travel in the footsteps of Paul Robeson or to places that were important to him to see to what extent those issues were still relevant to um, the, the, the modern world. This book is a travel log, it's a history lesson, and it's a kind of biography as well. It's written through conversations with people who knew him or his family or others who connected with his biography. And and underlying all of this, as far as I could tell from reading it, is a kind of political polemic, almost several layers of political polemics. And you only really bring those overtly into the narrative in the epilogue. Can you talk a bit more about the decision to pursue the story of an individual figure as a means to articulating this political perspective? Yeah, I think that was one of the, the aspects that really attracted me to Robeson as a figure. Now, it was partly that just his life intersected with so many of the key themes and elements of 20th century radical politics you know that he was the son of a slave Uh, he grew up under Jim Crow America he became involved in a struggle for civil rights but also the struggle against fascism and his life was fundamentally entwined with the great historical tragedy of Stalinism as well so his life was a way of um, exploring all of those issues but there was also I think a fundamental tension between, on the one hand, Robeson himself was a man of extraordinary abilities. He was one of these figures who seemed to be just about good at everything that he did. You know, he had one of the most beautiful voices of the 20th century, a very charismatic stage presence. He was a professional basketball player at one stage. He was sometimes described as the greatest American footballer of his generation. He spoke multiple languages. I think one estimate was he could sing in something like 23 different languages. He he had a law degree from Columbia. So he was just this phenomenally talented guy. So there's a sense that here is a figure who is extraordinary at the same time when you read people's accounts of Robeson and what he meant to them, there was also a sense that there was a whole generation for whom Robeson kind of spoke for them. So that he was this person who signified something for a generation beyond him. You know, that there was a sense that what Robeson did and what happened to Robeson mattered well beyond him as an individual. So he was, in one sense, ex- exceptional, but also in a way exemplary. And I thought that was a kind of interesting contradiction to try and explore. You sometimes touch briefly on how the people you met received you 
in your inquiries and it sounded like a mix of intrigue and confusion at times. Do you think the fact that you were an outsider from a very far away land hindered or helped you to connect to people in all of these different places that you visited? I was quite conscious of coming at this project from the outside, not just because I'm a white Australian writing about someone who's so significant to the black civil rights struggle, but, you know, from a different generation of the left and also from a different political tradition. So I come from a Trotskyist tradition, whereas Robeson was very much associated with the communist space. All of that may be something of an outsider and also just my personality as well. I'm not I'm not really much of an extrovert, so, you know, the process of going around and meeting all of these strangers, and some of them were quite strange to talk about <laughs> this book, was something of a, of a challenge to me. But I think that did allow me sometimes to get some insights that, that, that I wouldn't otherwise. I, that, that I, because I was so clearly an outsider, I was sometimes able to ask the kind of naive questions that um, might not have been possible had I been someone from within that world. So, you know, I started off the project by um, interviewing the descendants of um, the family who had owned Paul Robeson's father, William, as a, as, as, as a slave. And as you can expect, that was in some respects quite uh, an uncomfortable conversation. There was this real process of denial going on with some of the um, descendants of slave-owning families. And in fact, a large number of those people just flatly refused to talk to me once they knew what it was I was um, talking to them about. But the people that I did met, yeah, were really fascinated by the idea that someone would have travelled such in, such immense distances to talk to them and so opened up. And I think some of those conversations were absolutely fascinating. And even more so in um, other countries as well. So, you know, I travelled through Spain, a country about which I I had very little experience before I went there. And again, people were incredibly open with the things that they told me about their family's experiences through the Spanish Civil War and how that had intersected with Paul Robeson as well. Most of your work isn't about music. And this is a story of a person and his life. So it's not it's not that you have to be a musical expert to write about him, but you do include bits and pieces of musical storytelling in there. So, for example, you talk about his obsession with the pentatonic folk scale uh, from certain cultures' folk musics as an expression of universality and of solidarity between people around the world, which was a big part of his politics. I'm curious to know what your relationship to music is outside the scope of the book. I'm not in any way, shape or form a musician, but I am someone for whom music has been tremendously important and uh, particularly uh, music from the Caribbean. I've got a long and deep interest in Jamaican music, which, while not directly relevant to this book does sort of touch on some similar kind of themes. So in terms of Robeson as a musician, I think one of the really important things to understand about his musical career is its association with the rediscovery of the so-called Negro, Negro spirituals or the sorrow songs, which were 
the songs that slaves composed on the plantations that were often sung as work songs and were mostly, although not exclusively, mostly deeply religious and were often a way in which slaves, enslaved people could use the vocabulary and the tropes of the Old Testament both as an expression of overt religiosity but also to sing about their own experiences and so the bible was the one book that they were sometimes allowed to read it was the one topic that it was you know safe for slaves to talk about and so it provided them with a vocabulary to talk about their own experiences and a lot of the spirituals draw parallels between the israelites kidnapped and being taken to egypt and implicitly the, a comparison with the fate of um of Africans who had been taken to slave in a in, in a foreign land, but by the time Robeson came across the the sorrow songs in the mid twenties, they were largely regarded as an embarrassment mm. by um, African American middle class. They were associated with a past that people wanted to forget and this is in the era of the Harlem Renaissance where there was a, a, a tremendous emphasis on the importance of art and culture as a way of showing that African Americans were just as good as white people and thus deserving of e equality and Robeson played a really important role in presenting the spirituals to a new generation and using their double meanings both as a way of presenting these as songs from the past that were, because they were from the past, could be acceptable to a, to a modern audience, but also using their double meanings to talk about the experiences of African-American people in his generation as well. And so I think if you write about Robeson, you sort of have to write about music to some degree as well too. I, I was not someone who's particularly familiar with Robeson as a singer, but he's an extraordinary vocalist. Um, to appreciate Robeson's music, you have to cut through a lot of the cheese. So <laughs> one of the difficulties with his career is that because of the blacklist, which I'm sure we'll talk about, he wasn't able to record very much in the second half of his life when the music, the technology of um, audio recording was better. So a lot of um, the recordings of him were recorded on substandard earlier equipment. And so the quality isn't that great. And some of his other recordings are associated with Hollywood musicals. And so the orchestration of them is pretty awful. Um, but if you can find particularly his live performances where the sound is a lot rawer, um, he just has the most extraordinary voice. It's, ju it's just astonishing, and you know, sends shivers down your spine. You write of the reception of Robeson's early stage career that black critics would resent his choice to take on one-dimensional, stereotypical black roles in racist white productions, and they argued that in doing so, he was raising the profile of those kinds of plays and musicals rather than rejecting them. And you also suggest that these kinds of pragmatic choices were due to the influence of his wife, Essie, who made pragmatic decisions about her own ambitions to secure what she saw as a better life for them, very understandably. And these kinds of compromises strike me as quite important parts of this story, firstly because they humanise him, but the Paul Robeson who later became known as a staunch, uncompromising political activist was 
complex and driven by a mix of principles and the desire to live a good life. And my sense is that by showing the various so-called self-serving choices that he made, you're showing that self-sacrifice as such may not in fact be the route to effective political work. It makes me think of the climate movement today. So you write about that a lot as well in your journalism. And while there's a real strength to disruptive action, there's also a tendency toward spontaneous displays of the spectacular as the sort of primary form of activism, punctuated by larger actions every so often. What what do you think about this? And could you maybe talk about the potential issues with this? In, in, in terms of Robeson? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, all through his career, he was faced with these really difficult choices in a world where everything was weighted against African-American, well, not just African-American performance, just African-Americans more generally. So it's important to understand that Robeson's father was a slave, but after slavery became a preacher in a church and so part of a sense of a black middle class and very conscious that he was going to give his his son a good education and that Paul, with his obvious talents, was going to go on to better things. So there was always sort of a sense from his very early childhood that it was important for him to achieve, not just for him, but for um, the, the people who were looking up to him. And that sense of sort of upward mobility was also a very um, key strategic orientation in, say, the broader Harlem Renaissance, very much focused on individual success as a way of uplifting the race, as it, as, as it were. Mm. And so this, as a strategic choice, was something that, 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 that Robeson thought about a lot during his career. And then, as well as that, there were the compromises that just came from the material reality of being black in an incredibly racist time. So, you know, he never wanted particularly to be a performer. He took a law degree from Columbia and wanted to practice law and it then became apparent that there was no way that you could make a career as a black lawyer during the Jim Crow period. So he stumbled into the theatre and, as you say, the only roles that were available to him, both on stage, even more so once, once he went to Hollywood, were roles that were mostly written for... Black, for a black actor as a sort of bumbling sidekick. And so again and again, he would hesitate about taking these roles and then either on his own um, decision or because of the prompting of Essie, he would take on the roles and then would try to transcend them and do something with them. Sometimes that worked and sometimes um, it, it didn't work. Mm. In, in terms of the strategic uh, imperatives for the climate movement and for, for Palestine and other mass movements, it is a difficult period because I, I 100% agree with, I think, the implication of your question that what we really need is collective mass action if we are, particularly in terms of climate, if we are ever going to succeed in, you know, halting or reversing this march to destruction that we're on at the moment, it's only going to be possible through a mass movement almost on a scale that the world has never seen before at the same time we are operating in a difficult climate where a lot of the traditional forms of organization have been fairly systematically destroyed and so i think a lot of people are trying to negotiate this kind of i guess there is this similar sense of trying to make the right decision in situations where there aren't always Good choices, if you see what I mean. The politics of stunts, the politics of celebrity climate activists, 
are not great and there are obvious problems with all of that at the same time you know it's clearly a good thing when someone manages to use their position to to to, to try and speak out for the movement we've seen how important that can be around um palestine um so that's not a particularly coherent answer but i think it is I think you put your finger on one of the really big issues for our time. We clearly need an organised mass movement. We don't have an organised mass movement. How are we going to get there? One of the things that your book did make me reflect on, because it was such a focus on this singular figure, was the way that our culture does seem to be able to mostly relate to politics through individual figures or personalities. And even things that have been mass movements have in many cases morphed into kind of hero, martyr or celebrity narratives. So to what extent do you think that the search for inspirational leadership figures overshadows the real work of mass movements or maybe works against it? If I think about Robeson's career, he was someone who enjoyed a stratospheric level of fame at the height of his career, he was instantly identifiable all around the world. But at the same time, this was very much in the period of mass politics. And throughout his career, he was attached to, in various ways, institutions or organisations that entailed a degree of participation that really doesn't exist in the culture that we have today. So if you think about something like the black church, in the early 20th century in America and the role that it played in black community life, there really isn't anything comparable in a 21st century Australia. You know, Robeson always denied being a member of the Communist Party, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But certainly he was very closely connected with the Communist Party and his career especially once he became political, was something that was promoted within the Communist Party and the structures that that organisation had and, and its organisational forms throughout the working class sort of created the Paul Robeson persona in, in, in a way. So, you know, he goes to Wales, he, he becomes this sort of beloved figure amongst the Welsh working class, but... I don't think that would have been possible without the level of organisation in those sort of Welsh mining villages mm. that facilitated his tours and, you know, um, brought people together to listen to him. And so, yes, the Robeson career, the Robeson stories is a story of an individual, but I think it's a kind of celebrityism that is perhaps a little bit different from the form that celebrity takes in the 21st century in that, yes, it's individualised, but still very much uh, attached to all of these collective structures. While you detail the impact of the Spanish Civil War on Robeson's politics, you spend some time on the paradox of the kind of systematic erasure in modern-day Spain of that quite recent fascist history. It's very striking just how absent it is, and deliberately so. Uh, in sort of physical and institutional art artefacts, and yet it's also ever-present in them. Sort of you can't hide it. What do you believe that the lessons are for us in our present moment in examining this absence and presence of a very recent, historically speaking, fascist history in, in Europe? As, as you say, I mean, it, it's an extraordinary experience to travel through 
contemporary Spain looking for the traces of the civil war because simultaneously they're all around you. You, know, you see the bullet holes on the walls. You can walk through the fields and because the fascists wouldn't allow anyone to bury the dead, you can see human bones everywhere you go through these fields. There's, you know, there's, there's, there's um, all of the farmers are digging up... Um, grenades and shells everywhere you go it's, it, it's quite something in fact the other place it reminded me of which we're also traveled to in the course of researching this book is um is contemporary russia there's a very similar experience traveling around um say moscow where you can see the iconography of stalinism everywhere and a complete lack of assessment of what the stalinist period kind of meant and in, in terms of your your question I, I guess in both cases and I think I, I try to bring this out in the, in, in, in the book that you can't simply move on from this past and pretend that it's all over and done with and that it doesn't have any more to say to the contemporary world the issues that were raised in Spain in terms of both repression but also the possibilities of resistance to that oppression and and similarly um the questions that were raised in the old soviet union the contemporary russia about what socialism does and doesn't entail are still very much with us and simply by not talking about them we don't move on from them we just mean that they come out in all sorts of weird and wonderful ways and so one of the things i was trying to do with the book was to try and find a way another way to raise some of those those questions and what what answers we might draw from them precisely because i think in both cases they are so important to understanding the problems that we're facing in the 21st century i'm glad you mentioned the soviet union experience from the point that robeson is inspired by the welsh miners songs to his full embrace of communist ideals and visit to the soviet union he's actually quite consistent. He sees the fight against fascism in Europe and around the world as the same fight against racism and segregation in the US, or at least very strong parallels. And this consistency is made clear in its contrast with the inconsistency of the Western allies politically flip-flopping between opposing and endorsing such fascist regimes uh, in Europe and as and when it suits them. The consequences of this for him are, of course, that he's celebrated and then censored and persecuted for his consistency, for that very consistency. And it's so clear from your book how Soviet socialism did so much damage to the international socialist project. Can you talk about the tensions within his uncompromising embrace of the Soviet Union and his refusal to acknowledge that the Soviet Union had failed in the emancipatory ideals that he and so many others held dear? Yes, and again, this is a huge question. But you're right, the, the, the damage done to the socialist cause and the left more generally by Stalinism cannot be underestimated. We're still dealing with it constantly. I was thinking about it the other day when someone reminded me that um, in the context of the Palestinian struggle that the, the very first country to recognise the state of Israel was, of course, the Soviet Union, which did so three days after the formation of Israel. Stalin flipped over from anti-Zionism to the embrace of Zionism, largely to for strategic advantage in relation to 
Britain. And as a result, you know, the, the communist parties around the world were much more fervently Zionist than the American imperialists were for a long, long time. And we're still dealing with the uh, effects of that now. For Robeson, the discovery of the Soviet Union and the communist movement more generally was a complex process. As you say, I, it gave his politics within the United States a structure and a vocabulary um, and I think a sort of institutional support that allowed him to turn what previously had been almost like a sort of a moral hostility to racism into something more theorised and more uh, material. Brought him into contact with uh, the working class all around the world and very much made Paul Robeson the Paul Robeson figure that he became. It gave his politics an internationalism, at least of a sort, and particularly he played a major role in organising support for the Republican cause in, in, in Spain and marshalling people to, you know, to think about Spain and, and the opposition to, 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 to fascism. At the same time, what it also meant that um, he consistently failed to acknowledge the tremendous repression that was um, happening in the Soviet Union and after the Second World War in the Soviet satellite states. And you can find memoirs from dissidents in the former Soviet Union who would talk about, well, you know, they recognised Robeson as a great singer, but he was someone who was always sort of forced down their throats to justify this repressive regime that they were under. And um, when I was in Russia, I went to visit um, one of the few, I think the only remaining um, gulag that's still more or less intact. And um, when they were showing me around it, I just kept on thinking about the irony of this place that was based on intense physical labour of people who were working under slave-like conditions and the parallels between that and what was done to Paul Robeson's father. This, this awful kind of paradox of, uh, of Robeson himself coming to, you know, embrace this, this system of cruelty. And as I suggest in the book, Robeson suffered a terrible breakdown towards um, the end of his life. And while it's difficult to speculate on precisely what the cause of this might be, there does seem to be some connection between that and um, his growing sense that the Soviet Union was not what he had what he had said it had been and his complete oh, almost political paralysis at at, at, at this realisation had a devastating effect on him both personally and politically. He was suicidal. Um, mm. He was given huge amounts of electroconvulsive therapy and um, massive amounts of, uh, of, of, of drugs and essentially retreated from public life in the last, the last years of his life. But it's, it's, it seems to be significant, we don't want to, to overstate it, that th this happened in the course of a, um, a visit to the Soviet Union and um, it seemed to have resulted after um, an incident where he'd been contacted by the families of, um, 
well, being contacted by people who were trying to leave the Soviet Union or begging him for, for, for help. Being Paul Robeson would never have been an easy thing. That uh, he, he was under tremendous uh, pressure all of his life to be the best at absolutely everything. And it was made clear to him, his father was very stern and made clear to him that he had to succeed in absolutely everything he did. And that that was not just something to do with his own life, but there were all of these people who were looking up to him. And if he did not, if he was not the best at everything, he would be letting them down. And I think that that would have been an immense psychic burden for, for absolutely anyone. But um, it seems to have perhaps been coupled with a sense that the, the choices that he had made were, were not the right ones and that had a catastrophic effect on him. For those concerned about movement building, organising uh, around social issues and class struggle and anti-racism, do you believe that cultural activities such as music and theatre and art matter and if so, in what way? Well, I would like to hope they matter. They, they matter, otherwise I feel like I've wasted most of, most of my life. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 they, they, they do matter, but it, it, it is a good question and an interesting question because, because I think it's important to think about the ways in which they, they matter and things that they might do because music and art can play a mobilizing role it can be you know useful immediately in the struggle in terms of you know inspiring people to to attend an event or to take up arms about a particular issue or whatever and that's a useful thing to do but i also think that's not the primary role of art and that we should never reduce it to that i think one of the things that art can do is to help us think about the issues to which we have no answers, to grapple with ideas that we're not yet capable of solving and we're struggling to theorise properly. That's sort of what art does, I think. It allows you to say the unsayable. And if you are involved in a movement that's trying to make a new world and trying to imagine what it might be to live a different kind of life, to be a different kind of person, to be in a different kind of world. I think art plays a really key role in helping us to do that. So it's associated with politics, but it's not politics. In some ways, it's almost at a right angle to politics. And I think if you think about it in that way, you can have a sense of why it's important, what it can do, but also what it can't do. You're not going to stop the slaughter that's happening in Gaza by writing a poem about it. That doesn't mean that writing poems is not a useful thing to do, but it operates in a different kind of register. Thank you so much, Jeff Sparrow, for joining us on The Sound of Solidarity. It was a really interesting conversation and a very interesting book. I really recommend uh, that people read it if they're interested in the intersections of music and art and theatre and even sport and politics. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. <laughs>